Welcome to the Gateworld Podcast. This is episode number 48 of the Gate World Podcast. I'm Darren. And I'm David. And this is the show where two nerds talk about Stargate. This week we're talking about the overuse and underuse of characters on Stargate in our main discussion. But first we have a preview of Gate World's upcoming interview with actor Michael Kopsa and a little bit of news and site features. Michael Kopsa? Who's that? Who is that dude? General Kerrigan. Played General Kerrigan in two episodes in Prodigy in season four and proving ground in season five proving ground so let's jump into it stargate news here are your headlines from gate world for june 24th 2009 not a whole lot of stargate news this week but what we have is all convention news Gabbit Events has announced two big conventions that are coming next summer 2010 to Vancouver, British Columbia, the home of the Stargate franchise. The first one is the first official Sanctuary convention for Amanda Tapping's spin-off show, Sanctuary. It's called the Sanctuary Experience. The convention will run from July 30th through August 1st, 2010 in Vancouver, and the charity will go to benefit Amanda's new charity initiative, Sanctuary for Kids, which she told us about. So go to the Sanctuary event and then stick around in town because then Gabbett is bringing uh, Meet the Man. This is Richard Dean Anderson's first one-man event. We all know that Richard Dean Anderson does not do conventions all that much. He did GateCon last year in 2008. Uh, he did Comic-Con for the Continuum uh, promotional tour. But other than that, he doesn't do conventions all that much, and uh, Gabbett has him for an RDA-exclusive event. That's right after the Sanctuary event, August 5th through the 8th, 2010, in Vancouver. Wow, that's great. That is going to be sweet. If you got to book your plane tickets and hotel, then you might as well do these back-to-back. Yeah. There's only four days separating them. Hang out in Vancouver for those four days. There's tons to see. It's a gorgeous city. I think that's the idea behind it, definitely. Mm, it's a nice big summer vacation. From July 8th to July 11th of 2010 is GateCon 10, the 10th anniversary of the GateCon convention, which started back in 2000. You can check out all the latest information on that event at GateCon.com. No guests listed yet. Obviously, we just mentioned Rick for uh, his own event. I hope he does both of these. But, that would be uh, nice. We'll see. July 8th through 11th. So a month earlier than his his one-man event. Right. Gateworld Features. Our interview with Andy Frizzell, the Wraith Queen, is now up on Gateworld. Andy talked with us at the Creation Vancouver Stargate Convention earlier this year. See, all the cool stuff happens at conventions. you got to go to conventions. Got to go. So, yeah, check that out on the website right now. Last week on the Friday Five, our weekly top five countdown column we looked at best character intros the best introductions for main characters on stargate sg1 and stargate atlantis number five is rodney mckay i love rodney's intro in the season five sg1 episode 48 hours yeah very anticlimactic oh you think this is gonna be a cool nerd like sam no not really very prickly. What I loved is he's not only he's not only a jerk. I mean, there's those great Rodney lines that, that we talked about, I think, in last week's Season 5 podcast. I don't remember if it made it into the podcast or got cut out, but 
You know, those lines like, uh, I've always had a thing for dumb blondes that he says yeah. to Sam. Uh, yep. He's not only a jerk, but he's a bad guy in that episode. He's he's a lackey for Colonel Simmons. And for the other four best main character intros, head over to Gate World and look for last week's Friday Five. And coming up this week on The Five, we're going to do the best of Braytac. And for the expanding DVD features library in the Gate World Gallery, uh, if you haven't noticed, we've been adding screenshots to the Gate World Gallery from Stargate's DVD special features. Last week, we finished off the SG-1 Complete Series section, and that section has 8,777 screenshots in it. That is a very... Well, it was four discs uh, of bonus content that uh, Region 2 and other regions had uh, originally, for the most part, on their... Uh, season discs. Mm-hmm. So, but Region One that was kind of set up a little differently. So, and, in the uh, U.S. and Canada, if you don't have the SG One Complete Season, the giant box, you don't have these bonus features. That's right. But now you can peek at them. Right, twenty-one albums World. strong under the Gate World Gallery Special Features Screen Captures SG One Complete Series, and added this week to the Special Features Screen Captures section. That is a mouthful. Is Stargate Ultimate Edition. Uh, I was really surprised going back into this. This DVD set has been sitting on my shelf for a long time now, and I haven't opened it up in a while. And when I realized that there are only two special features. The ultimate on, edition of the movie? On the ult- in the ultimate edition of the movie. Yeah, there's not much on there. There's not much, but uh, the 592 screen grabs have now gone up from those two sections. That's the uh, features are, is there a Stargate and the making of Stargate. It yeah, I remember that has Twitter. some of that fun fun behind-the-scenes stuff from the Yuma, Arizona desert shoot. And last but not least is Gate World's brand new interview with actor Michael Kopsa, who played General Kerrigan in two episodes of Stargate SG-1 and also the TV announcer announcing the disaster, the landing of Apophis' mothership in There But For The Grace Of God all the way back in Season 1. We caught up with Michael at Creation Entertainment's Vancouver convention back in April had a great time sitting down with this guy and just chatting. He is a, a self-described journeyman actor, along with Carmen Argenziano. He's the other mm-hmm. guy who we've talked to who has described himself as a journeyman actor. You know, he was great. I think he, he and the other people who appeared on that Vancouver Actors panel were sort of called in at the last minute. So he just came and, and talked about his work on Stargate and his work uh, as an actor in Vancouver the decades that he's been there. I had a great time talking with this guy. The Vancouver Actors Panel at Creation earlier this year, in my opinion, was a profound success. I would be more than happy, gleefully delighted, with bells on, uh, for them to do one of those every single day during the convention. Mm -hmm. At least, at the very least, on Thursday and Friday. Uh, Because there were a lot of cool people on that panel. When 9-11 happened, there was a significant decrease in in uh, productions that were being shot here really? that at the same time in that year if you for those I can remember back there was a writer's strike in LA mm-hmm. also SAG was threatening to um, have a massive actor strike in support of the writer's strike the combination of 9-11 that writer's strike and the uncertainty with SAG virtually cut our production in half wow. and since then um, like most industries in the world uh, whenever there's a, a shortage of work, you can discipline the labor force, meaning you can offer them a lot less money, yeah, right. and we will take it because that's the only yeah, game in town. And uh, in since 2000, and two, say the year 2000, I would say that on the average day, a working, a working journeyman actor like myself 
uh, we've clawed back around 75%. So for us, we've taken a 75% cut in pay uh, over the last, instead of it going up, we've been continually going down. But having said that, uh, Vancouver remains pretty strong. Lots of shows going on. You're back up to 70%? or No, no, we've 75 down. You're up to 25%. Yeah, basically, on, a, on an average day. So that's that's been a bit hard, but it's everywhere. You know, I have friends that work in L.A., and uh, the same thing, you know, there, in fact, there's less work, so we're still lucky here. Uh, you know, I, uh, like uh, so many of my fellow actors on the panel today, we do a lot of voiceover, cartoons, uh, you know, we do everything. You have to this, uh, to make a living, and uh, we're, we've been fortunate. The main discussion. This week we're talking about the overuse and the underuse of characters on Stargate. We see this one a lot in uh, fan discussions of episodes. Fans naturally are going to gravitate towards uh, one or two particular main characters on the show that, that are their favorites. They become big fans of Shepard or big fans of Weir, big fans mm-hmm. of Daniel. Certain characters, you watch a show like this, they get used more than others, uh, not just more, but a lot more or a lot less. And so you get what what is called in fandom the wallpaper effect. Certain characters will come to become a wallpaper. They just kind of stand around in the background, and the writers don't give them very much to do, at least not very often. So that's what we're talking about this week. Yeah, it got to the point, in my opinion, on Atlantis. Not so much on SG-1, though I did notice it occasionally. It got to the point on Atlantis where I was asking myself, why is this character in this scene? Why are they there? They serve no purpose whatsoever. Mm. If this was real life, they would not be there. They don't say anything. That does lead to an interesting little bit of dialogue and and what I think was a great character moment for Ronan in... Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm thinking that it's in... First Strike. First Strike. When Atlantis is sitting on the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, Ronan says, you know, I'm not very good in these kind of situations. So he he wants something to do. He, He needs an enemy to point a gun at. He needs to learn some science. Yeah. The Fantastic Four scene. That's a nice little moment for Ronan. But in Atlantis, Ronan is, is one of the examples. He is, uh, like like Tilk in the early years of SG-1, he's the muscle. He's the alien. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's great for fighting and, and looking intimidating, but he very often doesn't get a whole lot else to do. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like really opposite from Samantha Carter. Where, I mean, if you watch the, the, the bonus features, which I've been, frankly, doing a lot lately, uh, in the early seasons of SG-1, it's clear that they made Carter to do everything, which kind of made her, as Brad Wright put it at one point, like a superwoman. I mean, mm-hmm. and not very realistic because she was, she was a scientist and she was a soldier and she did best at both. And on top of that, she was extremely mm. beautiful. Pilot. And just because her genitals were on the inside instead of the outside, and man, I cringe now every time I hear that one. Yeah, but, that was uh, suggested when we did the the Friday Five last week, the best character intros. That was suggested that we should include Sam on that, and I hate that character intro so much. They wanted Ronan, when, when he came in, they wanted him to be dangerous. They wanted him to be lethal, which in a lot of ways reminds me of Teal'c. Uh, look scary and take point. But, uh, mm. uh, you know, you know when, uh, when there are those down times, when there are those down moments... Uh, in between the action, what does this character do? Where does this character go? You know, and then you have a character like Rodney McKay, who is 
uh, if he's at the base and just chilling, we hear about his, you know, personal quandaries or, you know, the, 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 him bickering. And then when he's out on the field, he's either solving a problem or trying to get us to the end of a block of exposition to move the story forward. That character mm-hmm. always has something to do. Yeah. Now, we absolutely have to understand that, that those sorts of characters are going to get used a ton. And they're going to have something to do in almost every episode because they are there as, as, as a character who drives the exposition. Sam uh, in SG-1 in large measure drove the exposition, at least whenever it had anything to do with science or technology. Rodney mm-hmm. was the same. He, he needed to be there to drive uh, exposition. So in some ways, I think we're talking about dialogue. I mean, okay, that's the, the function that that character serves. In other ways, we're also talking about uh, the number of episodes that focus on that character. Yes. And how many Ronin it's... episodes can you count? I know. I know when you go to when you when you look at a show like Star Trek Voyager, how many Doctor episodes were there? You know, I could have swore I heard a I heard a, an interview at some point where all the all the writers just wanted to write Doctor stories because that character became so interesting somewhere mm-hmm. around season two or seven, especially um, in seasons four and five, seven of nine as well. Uh, so there is a there is a tough balance that you have to strike, and you know when when it gets to the point where a character is only useful for one thing. Should they continue to stay around? Or should you, like like Kess in, uh, in season uh, four, Jennifer Lean recognize that this character is not working out, is not doing what we intended for them to do, mm. and remove them in favor of someone who can serve the story better? Mm. Do you think that that's what happened with Lieutenant Ford being replaced by Ronan? I think... They only had 20 episodes in season one, and Rainbow didn't get focused on very much. And then when I mean, he didn't he didn't have a B story at, at all, I don't think. And then when season two came around and the powers that be at MGM and at Sci-Fi Channel wanted a new character to replace him, they got what they wanted. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't exactly fair to Rainbow because I think he was capable of much more. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am biased. Certainly, I consider the man a personal friend. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, I think that st- stuff happens. I and... was surprised, you know, when when that happened because it was so early in the show, and like you said, they had twenty episodes. You know, you, you knocked the pilot off that, knocked the the big action pack season finale off that. You've got seventeen hours to work with. Um, I expected them to be a little bit more deliberate in servicing their main characters and, and in attempting to give every member of the cast uh, kind of a spotlight. Yeah, it didn't happen. But they decided not to do that. They decided to, to do more of a, I don't know, again, I compare action versus versus character drama. They decided to make it more of a, of a action story of the week uh, kind of a show. <clears throat> than necessarily one that focused on, on each individual character. But the result was, by the end of season one, we did not know who Aiden Ford was. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he didn't get much other than, you know, maybe his letter home in Letters from Pegasus. There are a couple of lines in uh, season one that were actually supposed to go to Ford and that Joe Flanagan said that it would probably be better if his character were to say them instead and uh, the writers or the director on set at the time said, you know, that's actually a better idea. There's, there's, a, there's a line in, the, uh, in uh, one of the first episodes, uh, have you ever seen an explosion 
from X distance and and uh, Shepard says I have that line was actually supposed to be Aiden Ford's Hmm. Um, so there there were a lot of little things like that that um, really hurt the character and ultimately and you know they wanted to bring him back in season two and they they finally were doing something with him and it worked but they didn't really seem interested in actually pursuing it it was kind of like a token gesture yeah, you know, nothing against Ronan's character at all. Uh, I thought that the introduction of Ronan was terrific in, in terms of making him a, a more of a question mark, more of a dangerous element. Uh, I think that, that 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 role on the team was a terrific one, but uh, I don't know. I didn't miss Ford after he was gone because I never got to know the guy. You never got to know him! They never really gave us... This is why we we included Ford and kind of focused a bit on Ford in our previous podcast on characters that we lost too soon. Uh, because he... I mean, yeah. I mean, he finally got a story with the Wraith Enzyme and sort of going psycho and going AWOL. Uh, but uh, if we had had a chance to, to have that story a little earlier on, Ford would have, would have been uh, more of an integral part of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... You know, it's just it's it's unfortunate, but ultimately you got to move on, and and you got to serve as characters that make the show interesting. And I understand that. Um, but if there are characters that don't make the show interesting, have the courage to off them, and bring in someone who is interesting. Mm. You know, that was that was one of the things about when when we lost Tori Higginson, and you said this before. We we lost the 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 moral voice, the moral center on the show, and we started to do things like blow up a service. Mm-hmm. <laughs> With smiles on our faces. And that voice was never um, replaced. It wasn't. And uh, the story, for better or worse, in my opinion, often lacked because of it. Um, we needed a Daniel Jackson on, on Atlantis. We needed that. And we needed that person to be in a position of power where they could say, you know what, I disagree with you on this. This is wrong, and this is what we're going to do. Yeah. Um, and we may suffer for it. Mac Jackson writes in about Ford. He says, I think it's critical that if writers create a character, they utilize them at least enough to justify their creation. Characters like Ford were never given that chance, and quickly replaced with a one-note character like Ronan. I think some characters like Jack and Daniel have so many dimensions that it's easier to write them, while others need more effort. Should every member of the team have equal time? No, it would limit and cripple the writing options. Thankfully, a series allows for many different character episodes. Switching over to Teal'c, I think that he makes a really interesting case study for this question of overuse, underuse. I don't think you can find anybody who would necessarily say that Teal'c was ever overused. He was, in the early years of the show, he was the, the example of wallpaper. He was the, the muscle who stood in the background and said, indeed, a lot. Uh, but in the later years of the show, you know, when, when Rick was lowering his involvement and... and the other three characters could could start to stand out a bit more, especially starting in season seven. Uh, Teal'c really kind of stepped up and and was more of a focus of the show, I think. So he's an interesting case study because I think he was underused for many many years, but then he stopped being underused. Well, I think Teal'c, in my opinion, Teal'c is an exception because I, even though granted I was very young when I started watching the show, so I may not have been looking for this kind of this kind of a thing. Hmm. Teal'c was always the traitor of Apophis, and he always represented the enemy which we were going out to fight. Always. And that gave him a story. We weren't fighting the Athosians in Atlantis. You know, the Athosians weren't always coming up in every single episode. We weren't having to deal with them, or we weren't having an issue with Gould symbiotes and, and that sort of thing, trying to study them, or, or the Gould themselves. Teal'c always represents our enemy. 
that could not be avoided. Mm. And if there was nothing else going on with that character, we could default to that, and that would save us. That was kind of our net. With Taylor, for example, uh, the other alien on uh, originally on Atlantis, that was not the case. Mm-hmm. She was a woman leader on the first planet that we happened to meet, and we managed to bring her people back to the base, and she kind of just stuck around. Now, in the defense of Rachel, who I think is a great actress, I I really wish that there would have been a a more concerted effort to find a way of integrating Rachel into the day-to-day activities of Atlantis, because to me, it just didn't feel like it was working. And I may be alone in that assumption, largely in the the Atlantis fan base, being an Atlantis fan, but it just didn't feel like it was working to me. Mm. And that was one of the things that I brought up with Rachel. Uh, in a, in a recent interview with her, and she certainly agreed. Well, now back to Teal first. Uh, to give the writers all all benefit, uh, there were some episodes that were very much Teal episodes early on. There was, you know, we got to learn uh, Teal's story back home with his wife and son mm. in Bloodlines and in Family. Uh, he got a fantastic story in season one in Korai, where he has to face. I love that episode. He has to face the the reality of of what he did, what he had to do when he was first prime of Apophis. Um, there are great Tilk stories early on in the show, but sort of, I think that that when fans talk about Tilk being wallpaper, it's it's the cumulative effect. It's sort of the the wanting team episodes and and team episodes where everybody has something to contribute, and Tilk very often didn't contribute all that much in those sorts of episodes, like. You know, I don't know, pick an episode like Scorched Earth. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's a good thing he was tall. And intimidating. Yep. Atri says, The most underused character of the entire straight universe was, in my opinion, Dr. Elizabeth Weir. She had so much potential to be more. Some of my favorite episodes, and I think some of the best of SGA, were those she had a pivotal role in. Why not give Weir more to do? She was a very good diplomat and negotiator. She could have had a lot more opportunities to utilize her skills. Atlantis is in a hostile galaxy, and it should not be the same as leading the SGC. Instead of utilizing her full potential, they made her into a female Hammond. In the end, Elizabeth Weir never had the opportunity to really develop to her full potential. I agree with this completely. The first time that I interviewed Tori in 2004, before the show premiered, I asked her, you're the leader of this space, are you going to be like the General Hammond where you send the team off and then you're not really involved in the episodes? Uh, and she, they were shooting episode three at that time and she said, I don't know yet. Uh, but it, it turned out that way and what I was most excited about when the character of Elizabeth Weir was, was first brought into the Stargate universe in Lost City was that she was a diplomat. She had negotiated... Uh, so many different different things, different treaties with different countries. This was her big calling card, and to send mm-hmm. her out on this this international expedition to an alien galaxy where there are all sorts of species who are out there who are relating with each other and and they're using the Stargate, having trade with each other. This seemed like a, a perfect scenario for that character. It just wasn't used all that much. It was it was used a little bit, like when she goes to the Janai in the siege at the end of season one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, you can you can find examples like that, maybe maybe two or three of them total. One of the more innovative things that I have ever seen or heard about recently, you know, we, we hear stories about, well, we just can't find a person for this part. This this we, this person is not working for this part. We, we can't shoehorn this person into this part, you know. And then I watch the DVD special features for season one of Lost, and I find out that, Half of the main cast, at least, if not more, 
the actors were hired based on how good they were at acting, mm-hmm. and then characters were fabricated for them. Mm-hmm. And Lost, arguably, has one of the best sets of characters on television today. Yeah, and I think that's a great way to approach a, a character-based series is hire lots of people who are really good and, and make a big ensemble cast. Like, you know, Lost had like 14, I think, in season one. And then write for them and see who works and see how they gel and see what you like and then start killing them off. It sounds like Stargate Universe is going that way. Uh, they've, they've talked about characters like Camille Ray. Uh, who, once they started writing for them, just worked so much that they gave them a bigger role on the show. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Carson Beckett. Yeah, exactly. Here's a message from Spino Breaker. He says, Someone who fell into the background and had to be forced back in was Taylor. After the intro of Ronan, she lost her Xena-esque feeling to her. She wasn't the female Teal'c anymore. She was the female Daniel, and I never really liked it. I almost wished she'd gone to live with her people like Jonas did. Because in the end, all she ever did was stand in the background. Yeah. yeah. And again, and this, this is, is this is to nothing say negative nothing. about the Taylor character, exactly. It's just the the how it ultimately really played out here. I mean we're we're just trying to be honest about that. Um, yeah, and it's and I wouldn't blame it on any one episode or any one writer. It's just sort of the cumulative effect again over the course of it's five just years what on happened. the show. Right. This character ended up being far underutilized versus her potential. You mentioned that she helps us out with uh, getting to know the Wraith, the fight with the Wraith, uh, freeing our team in the pilot, and then she just kind of stuck around, was yeah. the phrase they used. That that really seems to capture Taylor well. You know, she was our Teal'c at first. She was our, our ambassador to other alien worlds that we had never visited before. And that was a nice little role for her. She was also the warrior, uh, so she got to do... Uh, hand-to-hand combat a lot which was which was fun to see mm-hmm. and i don't know when did that when did that drop when did she really kind of stop having a whole lot to do darren i'm not sure that she ever started i know that there was a very deliberate attempt you know with, with uh, the athosians in season one the the whole athosian experiment uh in my opinion when that failed the taylor character failed as well and they really tried at the end of the season mm-hmm. to invigorate the character with the you have some breath dna mm-hmm. in you the you know gift. that whole arc in the gift which was a great episode really tried to reinvigorate that character and it, it kind of ulti- after the the threat of of the wraith passed in the siege part 3 the the season 2 opener the character kind of fell flat and mm-hmm. and went into the background again. Yeah, I'm picturing that scene with Taylor and Weir standing uh, on that walkway overlooking the gate room at the end of Suspicion. The I can't afford to have doubts speech. Episode 5, this is when the Athosians were first leaving. They were departing Atlantis, where they'd been staying for a little while, going off to live on the mainland, and... Exactly like you said, it felt like this was sort of a coming out moment where Taylor's character was really supposed to begin. And instead, looking back on it, it's almost like that's where her character ended mm-hmm. in some ways. I mean, reinvigorating her with, with everything with the gift and, and her having rape DNA. I mean, mm-hmm. that stuff works great. And it leads to some, some nice little episodes for her like Vengeance. In mm-hmm. season three, where she uses that superpower to, to try and pick the brain of a Wraith Queen. Mm-hmm. Or the Queen, which is one of my favorite episodes to this day. Yeah. Sylvia says, I love Rodney to death, but the writers became so fixated on him, 
his almost dying every few episodes and his relationship with Keller that it became quite annoying towards the end of the series. It was much better when they would do a team episode. No one else on SGA was overused. Most were underused. Now let's, I mean, Rodney's a fun character. Come on. Oh, with yeah. his with his quirks and his, and his phobias and everything about him. But, you know, by the time season five enemies rolled around for SG-1, Daniel was holding a, and I've said this before, Daniel was wielding a P90 and, and was managing to, I mean, just, man, he was good at that thing. But Rodney, even at season five, <laughs> I wouldn't have given him a gun. Never Can't learned how to it. shoot. No. Yeah, it wasn't you know, a priority to him. That's crazy. You don't give someone like that a gun. <laughs> it's clear that he has no idea how he's holding it. Yeah. In a lot of ways, Stargate Atlantis kind of is the Rodney McKay show. And in a lot of ways, I don't mind because he's such a great it's a character. Good character. Yeah. But um, if you don't like that character, you're kind of hosed. Yeah. And you look at uh, it really felt especially like somewhere around the back half of season three that suddenly it was it was like, you know, every other episode was we've got a great idea for McKay. Let's mm-hmm. let's do uh Dow of Rodney. Rodney gets smarter and has to ascend. Let's do the game, which was kind of kind of Rodney and Shepard shared yeah. Uh, yeah. in the game. Yeah, I'll never forget meeting David Hewlett in, in season two, and he had so much dialogue that he was the only member of the cast who had lost his voice. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, hmm, this is an interesting study. <laughs> yeah, now the sheer volume of dialogue, again, I don't think that that's a question of over or underuse. It's that you create certain characters where in a show like this, in a sci-fi show, I mean, you end up with a lot of, of explanation having to be yeah. given. So you, you have, have characters that, that have to give that exposition. You know, on, on Star Trek, you have to have a chief engineer who can tell you the conditions of the engine or what, it's, science going, officer what it's going to take to yeah. you know, create the inverse tachyon window. And then there's not going to be a whole lot for Worf to do in that sort of conference meeting. Yeah. All you can do is say to him, Worf, make sure you double security. Yeah, every once in a while I, I rewatch Next Gen and, and you know, he uh, – they're very good to say, Worf, what do you think? Or Worf offers his opinion where he says, we should kill them now or we should – we should fight first and ask questions later. We should we mm-hmm. should shoot the photon torpedoes at them now. And they're always like, I appreciate what you're talking about, Worf, but we're not going to do that. Yeah. And 9 out of 10, you know, I, Worf, I appreciate what you're saying. We appreciate your thoughts, but we're not going to do that. Now, they did great stuff with sort of, of reimagining Worf's character after season one, after Tasha Yar left. Not yes. only making him chief of security, but giving him that bridge station where he, he got to be involved in the, in the bridge action a lot more and reporting what was going on on outside of the ship. Tashiar's death was the best thing that ever happened to Worf. Oh yeah, and to Michael Dorn. I would have loved to see that sort of, of reimagining for a character like Ford. If he's not working, let's let's give him something to do. Let's totally shake up his character, like what the Wraith Enzyme storyline. Mm-hmm. Let's just totally mess him up and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Instead we messed him up and and used it as a way to write him off. What's Luisco say? Luisco says, I don't think all characters need to be equal on a show like Stargate SG-1 or Atlantis. Usually the characters that get the most screen time are the better ones anyway. It's more a plot-based show, so focusing on giving characters equal screen time is not a priority in the show for me. However, if Stargate Universe is going to be a character drama, then it will be important that all the main characters get an equal share of the screen time over each season. 
You know, this is an interesting point. I am not at all saying every single character has to have the exact same number of words in every single script because or that's the not natural. Of episodes in every season, right? And that's not organic. But yeah. if a character isn't working, delete the character and bring in someone that's much more interesting or, or serves the character arc for that season, and then let them go the following season. You know, because the overall health, the overall vitality of the series is in question if you don't. Yeah, but I think you've got to give them something to do before you just decide that they don't work. I think that was the problem with Ford, was he was never yeah. given anything to do. I don't mind the character deletion when when you replace him with a great and interesting character like Ronan. Mm-hmm. But he didn't have the story before that. It's kind of hard to say, well, that wasn't fair, you know, because he never really had a chance. Yeah. Um, it's just sad. And some of this, there's a difference, I think, between a large ensemble show like Lost or Stargate Universe and a small show like SG-1 was always focused on four main cast members. Yeah. Uh, excluding General Hammond, who was who was kind of the base guy who sent them out. The team was, was four main characters. That's a small group. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Lost, you're going to have some characters that you focus on more. There's going to be more episodes focusing on Jack Shepard than on Claire. Yeah, and, you know, when you have a, a, a cast that's that large, it is a given that they're not going to all appear in a single episode. Yeah, and I think we don't mind. We don't mind because th- that's the only way to make that cast work. And Lost has proven that a cast of 14 characters can still work well. Mm-hmm. But when your cast is four, then suddenly it's weird when Daniel is off with SG-16 for mm-hmm. the episode. Yeah, I think it's a really telltale, interesting sign that Universe has such a large cast. You know, we're not going to be able to say, well, how many, is it nine or eight? I mean, it's a considerable number of main cast members. We're mm-hmm. not going to be able to say, well, they weren't all used this season. Of course they weren't all used in this episode. There's no way. Um, and I, I think that that's going to ease a lot of tension in that area, you know, because they obviously are not going to be able to service every character. But as long as when every character appears... You know, it's genuine, their presence is felt, and it makes sense. And I th- really think that we're going to see that. I really think that that's, that's what they're shooting for. You know, this, this whole discussion is about characters. Overuse, yeah. underuse, proper use. I mean, maybe you can make the argument that, that characters were used to, to the proper degree of the sort of characters that they were. They can only service so many stories. And a character like Ronan, it's tough for him to really service a story like First Strike. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe it's maybe it's an appropriate level of use, but uh, you know, if if Atlantis was an action show and and SG One was sort of a action adventure show, if Universe is, is a show of a different kind, if it is a character based show, then I really have high expectations for every character to get a turn, having a story yeah. told about them. Before we start knocking them off, let's see really who they are and what they can contribute. It's a really interesting sign, in my opinion, where you have a, a cast of four going through the Stargate, and yet three or four stories out of the year, you delete a couple of them from the episode entirely because they're simply not needed. Ah, mm. uh, the Darren Grunt. Yes, we agree, yet again. <laughs> you are listening to the Gateworld Podcast. Well, that's our main discussion this week. Thanks to everybody for contributing. Sorry we didn't get to all our comments this week. David, what are we talking about next week? SG-1, Season 6. That is going to be our topic for July 1, 2009. And, of course, we have a listener question in conjunction with SG-1, Season 6. Darren? The very predictable listener question is, what is your favorite episode of Stargate SG-1, Season 6, and why? 
Now, here's a kind of an alternate question. If you don't like that one or you want to answer both of them, uh, both your answers might not get used, but as an alternate, how do you think that the show fared after the loss of Michael Shanks? We've got to talk next week about the fact that season six was pretty controversial in fandom because you took out a, a beloved character who went all the way back to the feature film, mm-hmm. uh, lost him, and replaced him with, with a new guy. So yeah. some fans, uh, especially hardcore Daniel Jackson fans, skip over season six entirely. Uh, and other yeah. fans really, you know, they love Jonas. They started watching SG-1 when it moved to Sci-Fi Channel. So this is this is an important year for the show. Looking forward to this discussion. That will be our July 1st podcast. And then on July 8th, Daniel Jackson's birthday, it's our big 50th episode bash. What shall we do for our 50th? I think we should have a podcast and talk. Let's talk on a podcast for our 50th podcast of talking. And bring in some guests. So this will be a casual show. Uh, We originally talked about doing it as an open line night, but instead of the traditional open line night, uh, we're just going to shoot the breeze. We'll have some special guests on. We'll try and get Tammy on, some other people who we haven't had on the show before, and just talk about Stargate. Yeah, we're going to try and see just how many congratulatory slap on the backs we can get in one hour. Go us. I hope it's not just slaps on the back. I really hope it's not either. I That's not what this is about. I know for a fact that one of our special guests that, that I'm trying to get on has probably never listened to our show. That's what I want to hear right there. Yeah. That's July 8th, and then July 15th, we are talking about relationships in Stargate. If you're a shipper, you want to listen to this show. Oh, man. Here we go. We're going to get a lot of mail about that one. I hope so. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in again. In this episode, David and I talked about the overuse and underuse of characters in Stargate. We also gave you a preview of our interview with actor Michael Kopsa. Look for that on the site in just a few days. And for links to everything we talked about today, head over to GateWorld.net and look for the episode number 48 show notes. You can get your voice on the GateWorld podcast, talk about anything Stargate-related or what's on your mind, on our hotline at 616-712-1647. You can leave us a voicemail, day or night. Or tune in to the podcast feedback thread in GateWorld forum and leave us some comments there. Good times. Good show. Good Great show. Oldies. That was fun. That's right. Well, from GateWorld, this is Darren. And this is David. And we'll see you back here next week for more podcasts. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs>